America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day, another great week, in fact, in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation and a great week, we hope. Despite the fact that the Easter weekend, the Passover weekend, a holy weekend for Muslims too because the holy month of Ramadan saw a huge upsurge in shootings in the United States. Is there anything that we can do about this? Mass shootings are defined as shootings where in one location there is a shooter who takes down at, at least four people, not including the shooter. You know how many shootings we've had so far in uh, 2022? It's been 144 all across the country, including numerous big-time shootings this weekend. Is there anything we can do about that? There is a new book, actually, that suggests that uh, there is, and it does not involve some kind of simplistic idea of removing all guns from American homes. It's more complicated and more demanding. Worth doing? We will see. We will be talking about that with the author of that book. We'll also be talking about the latest nuclear threats, not just from uh, North Korea, which is ongoing, but from Russia, which is more serious because, uh, yes, North Korea has presumed nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them. But Russia, of course, has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. Does that mean uh, that it's necessary to, apu uh, uh, to appease Putin right now? Uh, let us hope that that is not the case. There's also polling that shows that uh, no political leaders are popular right now in America, that uh, overwhelmingly we disapprove of our political leaders, no matter who they are, whether they're Republicans, Democrats. Who is the least unpopular, the closest uh, figure to break even? You'll be surprised. Uh, we will get to that on The Michael Medved Show. And also a former chief of staff to President Trump, a very serious guy, says he believes that perhaps the right Republican nominee for 2024 would be someone who's never run for office before, never held public office, but is very, very well known and very much beloved. And who is that? He also says that, uh, seems to say he's a Republican. We'll get to that and the, uh, the statement by Mick Mulvaney, who was admired by so many of us during his time as budget director for President Trump, and as President Trump's chief of staff. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the, the fascinating thing about what is going on right now is that even with a, a devastating war that has preoccupied literally millions of Americans. The polling all shows that Americans are worried more about inflation, more than uh, the idea of war crimes and even genocide by Vladimir Putin, more than the fate of what is going on in Ukraine. Over the weekend, uh, there was a, an interview with Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, he was on CNN with Jake Tapper, and he was eloquent and moving 
even though he had something to say about the apparent hypocrisy, the president of Ukraine says, about some of the Western powers that have actually helped to back up the Ukrainian struggle for the continued existence of that state. Uh, here is President Zelensky on CNN. Clip 15. Every year on Holocaust Remembrance Day, politicians put out statements that say never again, never again. Those statements must seem really hollow right now to you. When the world says never again, do they ever mean it? I don't believe the world. After we, we see what's going on in Ukraine. We do, we, we, I, I mean that I don't believe to this feeling that we, we should believe to, the, to the, some countries or some leaders. We don't believe the words. After escalation of Russia, we don't believe our neighbors. We don't believe all, all of this. Even I don't believe documents, because we also had a Budapest memorandum. I think you know all, all the details of this. For me, that is just, just a piece of paper. Never again. Uh, Really, everybody is talking about this, and yet, as you can see, not everyone has got the guts. Uh, that was uh, the translator coming in uh, with the conversation between Zelensky and Jake Tapper. The, um, uh, the ongoing uh, slaughter that continues, and with the Russians now apparently preparing for that long-awaited uh, determined thrust into the Donbass to try to establish really a, a, a portion of Ukraine that they completely occupy and dominate. Part of what they are doing is trying to, to uh, wipe out as much as possible what is left of the city of Mariupol, uh, which has been most devastatingly hard hit by the Russian attacks. It was a city of 400,000. It now apparently has fewer than 80,000 people left in the city. Breaking news today, uh, Russia launched more long-range attacks with air raids and missile strikes across Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, and other major cities. On Saturday, Moscow said its warplanes stuck a tank repair factory in the capital. The mayor of Kyiv said at least one person had died. The attacks were launched following the sinking of Russia's Black Sea Fleet's flagship on Friday, the Moskva. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky told CNN that other countries should be prepared for the possibility that Russian President Vladimir Putin could use nuclear weapons in the ongoing war. Tactical nuclear weapons not aimed at America, thank God, but aimed very conceivably at Ukraine and its remaining military resources. Concerning its remaining <coughs> military sources, uh, Zelensky had some fairly shocking remarks about the level of casualties. Uh, this is clip 16. We think that we lost 2,500 to 3,000 
in comparison with the Russian military, who lost about 19,000 to 20,000. That's the comparison. But we have about 10,000 injured, and it's hard to say how many will survive. And uh, then, then uh, very, very grim reports about Mariupol. In fact, with the Ukrainian foreign minister even suggesting that Mariupol doesn't exist anymore. President Zelensky, meanwhile, whose country is facing a massive, unprovoked invasion from neighboring Russia, has called on the European Union to grant Ukraine membership under a special procedure and to do it immediately, a move that European officials said was unlikely. Why? Why, why should it be unlikely? Zelensky, whose country is under attack from Russia, appealed to the EU on February 28th for the immediate accession of Ukraine via a new special procedure. Our goal is to be with all Europeans and, most importantly, to be equal, said Zelensky. I'm sure that's fair. I am sure we deserve it, he said in a video speech shared on social media. We'll be back to a leading senator, senator particularly close to Biden, who hints strongly that America may need to be more directly involved in Ukraine. Is that appropriate or a horror and a threat? We will get to that and more about what to do about stopping mass shootings. Coming up on The Medved Show. Michael Medved show. Uh, everyone is holding breath right now, waiting for the next Russian attack. A great deal of conversation about what uh, Russia says will be, quote, unpredictable consequences. Many people read that to mean that they would use part of their arsenal of uh, tactical nuclear weapons and could very well use them against Ukrainians on the Donbass or a, some kind of demonstration. But the idea of going to nuclear weapons, at, at what point does the United States become directly involved? Uh, Russia has sent a formal diplomatic note to the Biden administration warning the U.S. against further arming Ukraine. The uh, Americans, our administration, our country has been sending far more sophisticated and large quantities of weaponry to the Ukrainians because they've demonstrated in winning the first stage of the war that they know how to use these weapons and they're not wasted. They're not going to simply be lost or given up to the Russians. They're going to be used, one hopes, to help Ukraine win this war and to protect its sovereignty and its continued existence as a nation. So the Russians don't like it. The note they sent to the State Department revealed Moscow's irritation with President Biden's decision to continue to approve arms transfers as the conflict shifts to eastern Ukraine. It used the same type of language Russia has been using for some time to object to Western efforts to bolster the Ukrainian military. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has previously described the strategy as part of a plan to increase Kyiv's leverage at the negotiating table. That's the way he describes our strategy, in an effort to eventually 
find a negotiated end to the conflict. The Washington Post first reported the diplomatic note from Russia to the U.S. and quoted Russian officials as saying the uh, weapons shipments could bring, quote, unpredictable consequences. Now, no one is sure quite what they mean, but one of the things it could mean, and a number of people speculated about this, is actually hitting the uh, weapons deliveries before they even get to Ukraine. So, in, for instance, if they're going through Poland or if they're going through Romania uh, or any of the uh, NATO countries that are friendly to the United States and friendly to Ukraine, if they hit the weapons before they even get to new Ukrainian territory, isn't that expanding the war? And particularly if they hit with, God forbid, tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, this is this is all dire, and uh, part of um, what makes it so dire is the tragic dimension to this entire episode, where, as Daniel Henninger made very clear in a great column last week, it is so very clear to anyone in the world paying attention to this that the Russian role in this entire confrontation, in this entire very costly, devastating war is evil. It's not based on anything. It's not based on any rational, logical self-interest or strategic concern. It's uh, based on pure evil. Uh, this was a statement by the Ukrainian foreign minister whose name uh, is Dmitry Kuleba, and uh, the foreign minister Kuleba of Ukraine said this about the city of Mariupol, uh, the coastal city that has been most heavily bombarded, almost wiped out by the Russians. Uh, this is clip 13. How long can Ukrainian forces resist Russian control of that city? The situation in Mariupol is both dire militarily and heartbreaking. Uh, the city doesn't exist anymore. The remainings of the Ukrainian army and large group of civilians are basically uh, encircled by the Russian forces. They continue their struggle. But uh, it seems from the way Russian army behaves in Mariupol, they uh, decided to raise the city to the ground at any cost. And uh, you understand what that means. I think you've seen some of the images. Every American should see those images because sometimes politics is like a high-level sport and people look at it as gamesmanship. This is life and death. This is good and evil. Uh, this is profound. I, I, I believe that people who are paying attention to this will remember it always. And it's one of those indications about why... President Reagan was so profoundly right. The only way to to advance the cause of peace is through strength. It is not through cutting military resources. And and this has been a, a lesson that uh, was incredibly important and had been forgotten apparently by our policymakers in Washington D.C. But now you have people like Chris Coons, the senator from Delaware, and he is one of those uh, members of the U.S. Congress who is closest to President Biden, and Biden has even said so, 
because he's a senator from Delaware, and obviously that's where the Bidens are from. And he was on CBS's Face the Nation. And he had a, uh, a strong statement that hinted at the real, very real possibility of um, America sending more than just weapons, but getting our personnel directly involved in this conflict. Listen to Senator Coons. This is clip three. This is a critical moment. If Vladimir Putin, who has shown us how brutal he can be, is allowed to just continue uh, to massacre civilians, to commit war crimes um, throughout Ukraine uh, without NATO, without the West uh, coming more forcefully to his aid, um, I, great, I, I deeply worry that what's going to happen next is that we will see Ukraine turn into Syria. The American people cannot turn away from this tragedy in Ukraine. I think the history of the 21st century turns on how fiercely mm -hmm. we defend freedom in Ukraine. Okay, and uh, that, it seems to me, is a plea that ought to at least be considered. Uh, meanwhile, more pleas about doing something in this country about mass shootings. At least 10 mass shootings took place across the country this weekend leaving eight people dead and dozens injured and uh, disrupting basically gatherings, including an Easter celebration and a massive house party that wasn't religious. There was a lot of underage people getting very, very drunk and then very, very shot. These shootings add to the year's increasing toll of mass shootings in the U.S. Now it stands at 144, more than one mass shooting every day of the year so far. Uh, CNN defines a mass shooting as a, uh, an incident in which four or more people are shot, not including the shooter. Fox News reports four major shootings broke out across the U.S. during Easter weekend, while Chicago and Baltimore recorded a bloody few days with multiple shootings. Two minors were left dead after a shooting at an Airbnb rental property in Pittsburgh early Sunday morning with several others injured as partygoers at the property attempted to flee the violence. And more in South Carolina, in Portland, Oregon, in Baltimore, in Chicago. Is there anything that can be done about this? Or do we just live with this? We'll uh, speak to an, uh, a writer who says, yes, there's much that can be done, coming up on The Medved Show. show uh, everybody in America, Republicans, Democrats, independents, people who don't even care about politics, and that's a lot of Americans, frankly. Everybody is sickened, it seems to me, by stories of mass shootings. And over the weekend, we had a huge upsurge, including a horrific house party that was shot up for no apparent reason in Pittsburgh and other shootings in South Carolina, multiples, and Baltimore, and Chicago, of course. So people are looking for some kind of fix, some easy solution. Yeah, how about making mass shootings illegal? Well, guess what? They are illegal. It's not, uh, you're not authorized to go shoot somebody for no purpose. Uh, somebody who has looked hard at what real solutions might look like, and they are far more complicated than any of the appealing simplicities, is a guy named Mark Fullman. He is the national affairs editor at Mother Jones Magazine 
and he has a um, a new book, brand new, that is a culmination of years of research about specialized teams that have uh, set out to try to discourage these mass shootings, particularly school shootings. The book is called Trigger Points. And, uh, Mark, uh, were you surprised at all of the level of violence on Easter weekend? No, not particularly, and, and thanks for having me on to discuss. Um, you know, we've seen this pattern of, of violence going on for a long time in our country, and it has been escalating in recent times. And it's, as you say, it's a complicated picture. There are different kinds of mass shootings going on in the country, too. Um, what we just saw over the weekend is one kind with a more sort of uh, reactive dynamic going on, where you have what appears to be different groups of people beefing with each other and getting into, you know, those kinds of violent altercations. And then we had what occurred last week in the New York City subway, which is a very different kind of mass shooting that we also see with regularity, where somebody plans an attack over a period of time and then causes this major traumatic event. Okay, so uh, what what is to be done on on something like this I mean people have spent a great deal of time trying to focus on school shootings but as you point out it's not just schools I mean it's shopping centers it's churches it's synagogues it's uh, and is there one area of commonality that we could focus on that would be helpful for people to get their minds around this well, interestingly enough, I think, you know, there's the obvious root of the problem, which is firearms themselves. We have so many of them, and we have a very patchwork regulatory system in the country, and we have this kind of cultural problem with violence that, that is not necessarily easy to pin down or explain. So I think the ongoing, long-running battle over gun policy and, and gun laws and, and the politics and all that, that's going to go on. But I really came to believe that we have to do more than that, and that's really the focus of my book, Trigger Points, focuses on a prevention method known as behavioral threat assessment, and it's especially relevant in the context of school shootings and in these kinds of planned targeted attacks like we saw in the New York City subway. I think the spate of shootings over the weekend are a little bit different in terms of potential solutions, but you know, as you suggested, this is a complex, broad problem in our country, and it takes coming at it from I think, of many different angles. And this community-based violence prevention is another way that I think we can make real progress, as I write about in the book. Yeah, and, and the book, again, is called Trigger Points. It's posted up at our website at michaelmedved.com. What about this idea that it, it's not just a question of the volume of firearms that are out there. It's the fact that the firearms... It's possible for people like uh, Frank James, the New York subway shooter, to get hold of firearms and given an extensive criminal record and a very severe mental health history. Uh, do we need to be more aware of people with very deep psychiatric problems and people with uh, prolific criminal records to make sure that they don't get deadly firearms? Yeah, well, I think there there are a host of issues involved here, as you suggest, and certainly uh, the way that we try to keep firearms out of the hands of dangerous people is, is one of them, and that in and of itself is complicated. But I think the real promise of behavioral threat assessment, the method that I write about, is that it 
it doesn't rely necessarily on those, you know, very familiar policy fights that we've had for so long. Instead, it's a more pragmatic approach to understanding what that form of violence really is. We have some kind of big myths about it. We tend to talk about these attacks as people who are, as being carried out by people who are crazy and just snap, quote unquote. That's always the question afterwards, what made the guy snap? But that doesn't reflect the reality of what's happening in these cases. They're, these are people with very serious problems who are spending time developing violent ideas and planning to carry them out. And the hope with the prevention work is that you can see that coming. There are behavioral warning signs. Um, I think the New York City subway shooter is a particularly challenging case because that person was living in significant isolation. But that doesn't mean that there was no one around him who might have been in a, in a position to speak up. And we see that more and more with school shootings and with workplace shootings. There are often opportunities for people to speak out and ask for help. And to trained teams of threat assessment experts, they can intervene. There are lots of ways they can intervene to try to steer someone away from violent planning. I document a lot of cases like that in the book, and there are many examples of this that have gone on around the country. And what, what about people who are concerned about privacy and basic privacy and freedom of expression? This uh, New York subway shooter had his own YouTube channel. He actually had some followers on his YouTube channel, and he was talking about violence there. Is it yeah. appropriate to have some kind of agency, either private or public, or a law enforcement monitoring very carefully what people express about themselves and about their plans on uh, social media? Yeah, so that's a great question, and it's really important to clarify how that works within this context because um, threat assessment work is not done through broad surveillance, and, of course, protecting freedom of speech in our country is, is vital. And so it's not a matter of you know social media companies or the government policing platforms and trying to identify who's dangerous. That, that gets into, like, minority report territory, right? And that's not what this is. What this method does is look at people who are raising concern in a specific case-by-case -case basis. So when an individual comes to the attention of a threat assessment program or team, they're going to look at what that person is doing, what's going on with them. Obviously, through lawful means is, is important. You know, it's it's not a criminal investigation. This is the whole idea. This is to get out in front of criminality, in front of violence. And so then looking at someone's, you know, social media content and you know, if a team had seen that those videos because the, that perpetrator had already come on the radar uh, for other signs of, of danger or concern among people around him, that's the context in which that work would be done. It's not a matter of trying to use digital data to try to figure out or predict who's going to become a mass shooter. That's not possible. And so who who would be responsible for this? Would this be a federal agency or are you suggesting local state agencies or non-governmental approaches it's really kind of all the above although it's it emphasizes i think being uh local and community-based so there have been some federal efforts and to build these programs and they were developed at federal agencies I, I write about that history in the book this originally comes out of work done at the secret service and the fbi in collaboration with mental health experts trying to study assassination and celebrity stalking and then moving into the space of mass violence, workplace shootings, going postal in the 80s, and then on to school shootings after Columbine. Um, however, the, the, the model is really meant to be built locally. And so 
you know, one of the areas that I really focus on in the book is a threat assessment program in a school setting. And there you're talking about having a team that's comprised of school psychologists, counselors, administrators, working together with people who have expertise in mental health and law enforcement and getting the training to use this method, to use these protocols for evaluating a person of concern. And the uh, book by Mark Fullman is called Trigger Points. It is posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. Uh, speaking of trigger points, what about the latest tests from North Korea? Uh, reasons for concern? We'll get to that. says that uh, North Korea uh, claimed that it successfully test-fired a new type of missile capable of carrying nuclear warheads over the weekend, just before the United States and South Korea began a joint cyber military exercise. This was the uh, 12th North Korean missile test in three and a half months. And a sign that the country's leader, Kim Jong-un, is fast-tracking a serious upgrade to his already fearsome arsenal. Now, that doesn't mean he can feed people. That doesn't mean that North Korea isn't a complete wreck of a country. But uh, the uh, CBS News reports it wasn't the hardware of the weekend's test that set international alarm bells ringing, but the rhetoric around the launch... For the first time, North Korea explicitly said that the missiles are designed to carry nuclear weapons and that uh, it announced that it already has a tactical nuclear ability. In other words, it has already developed the right kind of small nuclear warheads. Uh, we'll be talking about this and what that means with uh, Nick uh, Eberstadt uh, coming up on, on the Medved show. But... Uh, Meanwhile, for, for people who are not sobered enough by the news, uh, there is so much that is so worrisome. And to pretend that uh, it's one of those things that frustrates me because, look, inflation is terrible. I mean, it's it's terrible. It's uncomfortable for everybody. But inflation is not going to blow up the world as we know it. I mean, we will survive. We'll get over the inflation. It may be a painful process as it was back in the 1980s under President Reagan, where at first he, he had to, uh, the Federal Reserve a director at that point, Paul Volcker, came in and they raised interest rates and they brought on a mild recession, but that cured the inflation. The inflation will be cured. But there's there's stuff like this that is more serious, more existential. And no, it's not just North Korea. Uh, we, we covered William Burns, who is the CIA director, who's supposed to know what's going on in the world. And last week he spoke at Georgia Tech and said this, and it's extraordinarily dire. It's a clip 14. 
given the potential desperation of uh, President Putin and the Russian leadership, given the setbacks that they've faced so far militarily, um, none of us can take lightly um, the threat posed by a potential resort to, to tactical nuclear weapons or low-yield nuclear weapons. We don't, while we've seen some rhetorical posturing on the part of the Kremlin about moving to higher nuclear alert levels, so far we haven't seen a lot of practical evidence of the kind of deployments or, you know, um, you know, military dispositions that would, you know, reinforce that concern. But we, we watch for that very intently. It's, you know, one of our most important responsibilities at CIA. Uh, yeah, nuclear war, which we all, would all, I think, greatly prefer not to think about, is not inconceivable at this point. Nor is mass starvation in a European country. This is uh, David Beasley, who's a longtime Republican, by the way, who's serving as executive director of the UN World Food Program, had this to say about some of the impacts of the continuing slaughter, warfare, nightmare in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, listen, this is clip five. Are you confident you can keep food supply lines open? No, I'm not. I'm not confident at all. In fact, we're reaching millions of people, us and all the partners in the international community here inside Ukraine, but there are places that we can't reach, like in Mariupol and other places where Russian forces have besieged the city and, and are not allowing us the access we need. If we get the access, if we deconflict these access points, we can reach every single person that is suffering, struggling for food right now. We've seen food depots that have been blown away. I've seen places where there's nothing in these warehouses but food. And that's not even in Maripol. And so there's no question food is being used as a weapon of war in many different ways here. And uh, I don't know the reason or the rationale for it. And uh, again, there were, at the beginning of this war, 44 million people living in Ukraine. Not a small country and not a small level of tragedy. Now, with all of this going on, it's mostly the economy that is leading to the totally disastrous, nightmarish approval ratings for President Biden. And what's really terrible is Republicans are not particularly beloved in the country right now. Nobody's riding high. Uh, but uh, the, the Democrats, how do they go before the people coming up in November and say, well, we want uh, to continue doing what we're doing? How does that work when 70 percent of Americans think we're on the wrong track? This is a um, summary by CNN and uh, uh, their pollster in chief, John Enton. Uh, this is clip 20 about Biden's net approval rating on the economy. Listen. If you look at jobs, the economy is doing pretty good. If you look at inflation, not so good. How do voters see it? How do Americans see it? This is the University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Index through this point of presidency. Look at that. Just 66 in April of 2022, going back since 1978. It is tied for the lowest it was 66 in April of 1982. Of course, that was a good year for Democrats in the House of Representatives with the Republican president. And I'll just note, if you don't believe that the economy is hurting the Democrats and Joe Biden, 
Look at the net approval rating. That's approval minus disapproval. Joe Biden at this point, minus 23 points. That is the worst on record since they started asking about economic job approval ratings back in 1978 with Jimmy Carter, who, of course, ended up the economy, ate his presidency and put it to bits. Yeah, he lost in a landslide. Uh, more on Biden's approval from CNN, Clip 21. Brand new polling out on the presidential approval rating, and it's not good for President Biden. Joining us now, Harriet and CNN senior data reporter. These numbers are really tough. You know, John, I don't like just looking at one poll. I like looking at multiple polls. And there were four different polls released this week. Uh, Quinnipiac, we had a... Uh, Hard public opinion strategies polls, that's with NBC or CNBC, Ipsos Reuters, C CBS News, YouGov. I want you to look. These numbers kind of differ. They range from the low 30s to the low 40s. Low 40s is not good either. But what's key is the lowest are tied for the low for the pollster. Lowest here. Lowest here. This is one point off the lowest. Lowest here. And when you have three or four pollsters showing the lowest numbers for the president of the United States, that is indicative of a president who's in a lot of trouble, at least to where he has standed historically. Okay, the only hope for Democrats, at least uh, according to several reports, the only hope for Democrats, they say, is to put somebody on the ballot who's not likely to be on the ballot in any real sense in this election of 2022. Talking about Donald J. Trump. Uh, is that true? Is uh, is it uh, true that, uh, frankly, right now, if you look at a whole series of polls, the Federalist makes it clear that Donald Trump is the least unpopular leader in the country. In other words, he's net unpopular. More people hate his guts than like him. But he is less hated than Joe Biden, less hated than Nancy Pelosi, less hated than Chuck Schumer, and particularly less hated than uh, Mitch McConnell. So what is going on there? And what is going on when one of the... I One, one time Mick Mulvaney, the uh, one time chief of staff for the White House, he was budget director for the White House, he was a congressman from South Carolina, very dynamic guy, solid conservative. And he is saying right now that uh, the Republicans should look seriously as a candidate for president and somebody who is a celebrity, as Trump was before he became president, and has indicated a willingness to consider a presidential race, but is far from, uh, from actually jumping in. Is Dwayne The Rock Johnson the, uh, the answer, the messiah? that uh, Republicans have been waiting for? And what about the Democrats and the inability to, to deal with explosive issues like the issue of reparations, which is making a comeback? We'll get to that and much more in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.